Good morning, everybody. Reading from 1 Samuel. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zephite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zeph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Peninnah, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favour in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel saying, because I asked the Lord for him. When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfil his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull. 
an ephah of flour and a skin of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli and she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. Well, happy Mother's Day. Uh, If you're a a mum here, I hope your kids spoiled you this morning. As a kid, I, I have very fond memories of Mother's Day. We'd often go up to my grandparents' place and spend the lunch and afternoon with them, get fish and chips from the local fish and chip shop, and uh, mum would get some gifts, and grandma would get some gifts, and generally somewhere in there there was chocolate which got shared around to everyone, which was pretty perfect. And yet, there was something about Mother's Day that I thought was just a little bit unfair. That is, we had Mother's Day, and we had later in the year Father's Day, And so I said to Dad, Dad, wouldn't it be great if there was a kid's day too? To which Dad responded, every day is kid's day. And the longer that I'm a parent, the more I realise, yes, he's right. So, uh, happy Mother's Day. The thing is, though, for plenty of us here, Mother's Day is not a happy day. Our, Our families... They live far away from us, and Mother's Day is just a reminder of how, well, how distant sometimes our families can be. Some of us here today have lost our mothers, or we're mothers and we've lost our children. Some of us have mothers, and we feel like they weren't really mothers to us ever. Some of us want to be mothers, and we're not. Mother's Day can be a day that's not a happy day for so many people. In fact, don't we live in a world where we all endure these kinds of things? It's the normal experience, right? Things are unfair. We, we go through grief. We want the world to be different than what it actually is. But what really brings change? What brings lasting, good transformation? Where do you find this kind of thing? That's Hannah's question. She's living with the reality of of infertility. And for her, it's painful. We just read her story. Christine read her story to us. If there's one word that describes Hannah's family life, I think it's messy. Just terribly messy. She's married to a guy, but he's also married to another woman. And this other woman is the one who has all the kids and she uses that fact to make life miserable for Hannah. Take a look at verse 6. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Imagine Mother's Day for Hannah. It's brutal, isn't it? 
some of us feel the same about Mother's Day today. Yet, we can enjoy it for our friends. We know it's good, and yet we feel the hurt inside of ourselves. To make it worse for Hannah, it seems like her husband is just... He's a bit inept in all of this. To start with, he married two women. Now, I know you see that happen a lot in the Bible. But it's never good. It's not what God wants, and it always ends badly. But on top of that, Hannah's husband, he doesn't do anything to stop uh, Panina's provocations, does he? Never does he step in and say, don't do this. If anything, he probably comes across as a little bit insensitive. He thinks that just by giving Hannah a little bit of extra meat, well, that'll make things better, won't it? Basically, he says to her, Hey, Hannah, no, you don't have any kids, but it's not all that bad. I'm your husband. Doesn't that seem insensitive to you? And so in the midst of hurt and in the midst of Hannah feeling injustice, what we see is that real change comes from God. That's the first point today. Real change comes from God. Check out verse 10. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. Hannah realizes there's only one place for her to go, one person she can go to at this moment. She can only go to God, can't she? Verse 5 told us that God is the one who closed her womb. So rather than be bitter about that, Hannah recognizes that God is the one who can open her womb too. And so she prays to him. So what about you in those moments? Personally, when, when, when life hasn't been going the way you expected and, and, and when you think that things just shouldn't be this way, when you feel grief or injustice, where do you go? What do you do? Do, do you pray? Listen to Hannah's prayer in verse 11. Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I'll give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. Hannah's not trying to hide her feelings here at all, is she? She's... Very real, very raw. But within this prayer, there's a simple recognition that God is the one who can change things for her. Because real change comes from God. And you know what? God does bring real change. She goes back home, sleeps with her husband, and the Lord remembers her. And because the Lord remembers her, she has a son. She has a son. And I reckon anyone who's wrestled with infertility is thinking, oh, if only it was that easy. If only it was that easy. I've prayed to God before, but it feels like my prayers are just bouncing off the wall. I'm getting nothing. Still, no children. If only it was that easy. You want to know why, don't you? God, why don't you hear me? Why don't you answer me, God? 
There's no simple answer in those times. Sometimes we just we do not know why. And God doesn't tell us. Why does Hannah get a kid and not me? I don't know. That's probably the hardest answer you can get, isn't it? But God just doesn't tell us. So what do you do then? What do we do with infertility? Here are a couple of things I think are important for us to remember. Firstly, as a church, we need to be the people who care for one another through all sorts of different situations in life, including with infertility. See, it's, it's, it's actually a really hard thing to walk through. We just have the expectation, most of us, that we'll grow up, we'll get married, we'll have kids, we'll grow old. But it doesn't always happen like that. And so infertility is a hard road to walk. And there's some of us here who are walking that road today. And there's some of us who will walk that road in the future as well. And when we do, we're going to need each other. You can't walk that road. You can try and walk that road alone, and it's painful. We've got to walk that road together with one another. And, and on that, can I just say, um, it's, it's worth me saying, we've got to be sometimes a little bit careful about choosing the words and, and the way we talk about things. See, sometimes I think we can say things, and we don't really mean anything by them. We're, we're, we're well-intentioned. But we say things like, oh, come on, mate, you guys have been married for a few years now, you know. Isn't it time? Don't you need to go and, you know, do the deed and get your family started? Don't wait too long. And often when we say that, we, we might have good intentions. We don't mean anything bad at all. But, gee, it stings. For, for, put yourself in the shoes of the couple who are, are, are trying to have kids, who want to have kids, Put yourself in the shoes of them and well, those words cut, don't they? Put yourself in the shoes of the single person who does want to get married, who does want to have the family, who, who, who doesn't want to stay as they are and they get nudged on. You know, why? You've got to hurry. Don't wait too long. There's girls all around here. Those things sting and hurt. And I'm not saying we can't or we shouldn't ever talk about those. No, absolutely, we should. Definitely. Because we need to walk that road together. But it's worth being careful about the words that we use, isn't it? Because words can sting. God doesn't give us all the answers we, we might want when, when we're dealing with infertility, but we walk together. We walk that road together. That's what a church community is for. But also, we've got to hold on to God in the midst of that grief. Remember, God's the only one to bring real change. Maybe he hasn't yet. And, and for some of us, it may be that for whatever reason, God never changes our situation of infertility. It may be that some of us will go through life never having our own kids. And yet I want to say, in the midst of that, hold on to God. It's not the time to let go. In fact, that's what we all need to know. For all of us, there's things we want to see change. 
things that grieve us and we feel the injustice. We want some kind of transformation and it can seem like God is not doing anything. We ask him and nothing comes back. In the midst of our grief and in the midst of, of, of wanting good and right change, I say hold on to God in that. I think what, you'll find, what, what you will find is that God is holding on to you more tightly than you ever realized before. Hold on to God. Real change comes from God. And we see that in, in Hannah's life. There's a personal situation there where God, personally for Hannah, God's bring change, God brings change. But then we also see it on a national scale. In chapters 2 to 4, we see it on a national scale uh, where there's a leadership crisis. Eli is the leader of Israel at this stage. We met him in chapter 1, and he comes across as a pretty uh, a flawed guy, I'd say. He seems to keep mis- he keeps on misreading what's happening. So he sees Hannah praying, and he takes her to be a drunk. In chapter 3, uh, the, the young, young Samuel is at the temple, and, and uh, uh He's there with Eli, the priest, and God speaks to Samuel. Samuel seems lying in his bed. He doesn't know what to make of this. So three times he goes to Eli and says, did you call me Eli? Eli says, no. Did you call me Eli? Eli says, no. Three times it takes before Eli realizes what's actually happening here. This is the guy who's the priest who stands between God and people. He should know what's going on. It takes him three times. It just seems like... Eli keeps misreading the situation. But Eli's greatest flaw is actually in the way that he mishandles his sons. His sons are named Hophni and Phinehas, and like Eli, they're priests as well. But when the people come to sacrifice, these sons of Eli, they don't do the right thing. They, they take more meat than what is their right to have. And not only that, if anyone tries to stop them, if anyone dares stand in their way and say, no, 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 this is not what God wants... Well, they bring in a couple of standover guys and they take it by force. So verse 17, the sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. In fact, it goes deeper than just meat. Verse 22, now Eli, who was very old, heard everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Eli hears about these things, and so he goes and he tells his sons, you've got to stop this, stop it. But they don't. And it's as if, it's, it, it, it's as if Eli is, is turning a blind eye to them. We don't hear again of Eli coming, of Eli attempting to stop them. He doesn't try to restrain them again. And at one level, look, you can feel a bit of a sympathy for Eli, can't you? He knows his sons are up to no good. He tells them to stop and, well, what can he do if they don't listen? But the problem is, this is not just about Eli and his sons. The whole nation is at stake at this point. People are being robbed of their ability to rightly worship God. And on top of that, you have the leader of a country, Eli, who's on his way out. He's getting old. And his sons are stepping into their shoes. And you've got to think, how can God's, God's nation function? How can God's people be God's people 
when leadership is so godless? How's the situation going to change? Well, God decides enough is enough. He brings on the change. He sends a, a man to Eli. This guy has not got a name. Uh, he might be a prophet of some kind, but he brings a message from God to Eli. And it's a message of judgment. Uh, chapter 2, verse 29. This is the charge God brings against Eli. God says to Eli, Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice part of uh, choice, choice parts of every offering by my people, Israel. It's kind of intense here, isn't it? He's saying to Eli, look, you looked after your own sons at my expense. It's like, it's like nepotism. You look after your family, but who's the one who's overlooked? It's God Almighty. And so God says to Eli, that's it. As far as your family is concerned, there is no longer a priestly line for you. Verse 30, therefore the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that members of your family would minister before me always, but now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me, I'll honor. Those who despise me will be disdained. The time is coming when I'll cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house so that no one in it will reach old age. That's all in chapter 2. In chapter 3, God again tells Eli what he's going to do. I'm going to take you out of your position of power. And then in chapter 4, it all happens. Israel lose two battles to the Philistines. Many soldiers are killed. Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they're killed. Eli hears the news as he's sitting on a chair on his chair and it shocks him so much he falls over, breaks his neck and he dies. Phineas's wife is pregnant. She hears the news and it shocks her to the point where she goes into labor and in the process of giving birth to her son, she dies too. God's judgment on Eli's family has begun. And if you're anything like me at this point, you start to think, well, gee, isn't, isn't God's judgment a bit, too, a bit too severe? I mean, it, it, it plays into that idea that you hear often, don't you, that uh, in the New Testament you have Jesus and he's nice and full of love. In the Old Testament, there's an angry God, a God of judgment. It's like he's, he's a big, angry tyrant. He's all about judgment. He's mean. He's cruel. And, well, if that's what God's like, I don't want a bar of him. You've heard that before, have you? Is that what we're seeing here? Is God just a big, angry tyrant? After all, come on, God, it's just two guys. I mean, sure, they've gone a bit wayward, but, but now why does the whole family have to pay the price, God? What are you doing? If I'm honest with you, the judgment of God can make me feel uncomfortable, terribly uncomfortable. You like me.
when I feel like that, I, I often try and remember some things that are true. Things like this. Uh, I actually don't see everything. God does. I don't actually know what's going on in people's hearts, but God does. I, I don't comprehend holiness, true holiness, like God does. I don't see the ugliness of sin to the same degree that God does, with the clarity that God does. My sense of, of justice is, is broken and skewed, but God's is not. And so sometimes, when I hear of the judgment of God, I need to just let it stand. Without my critique and without my objections. Because God is the one who sees, who knows, and his judgments are good and just. Even when they make me feel uncomfortable. And we need to remember, don't we, too, a God who loves us won't be indifferent when there's injustice. A God who loves us won't be indifferent to injustice. He will bring justice, even when that means judgment. So whether it be a personal crisis of Hannah or a national crisis for Israel... Real change comes from God. Currently, I'm reading a book. It's called 112263, which is a date. Now, it's the way that the Americans write dates, so it's a little bit wrong, I know. But uh, November 22, 1963, which is a famous date because of. Anyone know? The Kennedy assassination, that's right. It's actually. There's, there's, actually, there's, there's, there's other things that, that happen on that. That's actually the day that C.S. Lewis died as well. But. Um, I'm reading this book called 112263. Uh, Basically, it's a time travel book. There's these two guys. uh, They're living in current day. And they find a portal that takes them back to 1958. And I'm only at the start, but the the, the guy who found the portal is actually too sick uh, to to go back and do anything. But he wants to change the world. And so he has to convince his friend to go back into the past and change the world. And what does he see is the most important thing to do? Well, the way he sees the world, he says that the, 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 thing, the way to change the world is to stop the Kennedy assassination because that was the start of a whole bunch of other things that went bad. So if you stop the assassination of Kennedy, well, maybe you can stop all the other things as well. And so he, he asks his friend, the main character of the book, Jake, he says to Jake, can you go back and do this? And And at that point, Jake's feeling like the weight of the world is on his shoulders. You know, who is he after all? He's just a high school English teacher. Who is he to change the world? And I mean, even if he wanted to, he starts wondering, you know, what if things go wrong? What if I can't do it? What if I change something and the world gets even worse? Like I said, I'm only at the beginning of the book, so I don't actually know what happens. I can't tell you right now. But I can identify myself with the way that that character feels, that, that, that Jake feels. How can he possibly be the one to change everything? Wouldn't you feel like that too? If you're the one who had to right all the wrongs, if you're the one who had to change things and put things back together again, wouldn't you feel burdened by that? 
what I'm saying today, this morning, what we're seeing in the Bible is that real change comes from God, and yet he actually uses people, or more rightly, he uses a person to bring about that change. That's the second point today. God brings real change through his king. We see this in the prayer that Hannah prays. There's two stories. Uh, The first story about Hannah and her personal situation. The second story about Israel and their national leadership crisis. In between is a prayer that Hannah prays. We're going to read it now. Christine is going to come up and read it to us. Um, It's chapter 2, verse 1, verse 10. Have a listen to what Hannah prays. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honour. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants. But the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. For a woman who's just had a baby, it's not the prayer you might expect, is it? She doesn't come up and say, oh, God, thanks so much for this baby. This is beautiful. I love it. And, oh, help me not to stuff up. Please bring this kid up to know Jesus. There's none of that. It sounds more like a prayer of war, doesn't it? She talks about her mouth boasting over her enemies. She talks about God delivering her, about warriors' bows being broken. She really didn't like the other wife, did she? No, but this is Hannah's story. But she's seeing her story as part of something bigger that God is doing. Her story is is tied up with the story of Israel and actually tied up with the story of the whole world. Change is coming. It's what we saw with, with Hannah's story and with Eli's story. Change is coming. And no longer will wealth or power or family determine who wins and who loses. Because God is breaking the bow of the warrior. He's taking away the wealth of the well-fed. He's, the one who boasted about their big family will stop and cry. These normal measures of power and strength, they just aren't going to cut it anymore. Because God is turning the tables. 
The weak are now the ones who are strong. The hungry are now the ones who are welfare. God is turning the tables. And he's doing it through a person, through his king. Verse 10, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Recently in our family, we've watched a couple of nature documentaries with Eva. Um, Blue Planet or Planet Earth or whatever they are. David Attenborough, you know the things. Eva likes seeing the animals and I guess I figure that that's probably better than a cartoon. She might learn something, who knows. Although when the lion starts to chase the zebra, I go for the fast forward button because I don't think I'm ready to explain all that just yet. But I love it on those shows when you see things battle. Like two elks. You know the elks, they've got these big horns on their head and they just clatter one another. They keep charging and ramming one another until one comes out the victor. One slinks away in disgrace. The other stands there nice and tall, his horns raised high. The victor. And that's the image here in 1 Samuel. The king's horn is exalted. He's won the battle. He's the one with strength and power. He's the one who brings change and turns the tables. He's the king of God, the king that God, does, that God gives strength to, the king that does the work of God. That's the prayer of Hannah. And it comes at the start of 1 Samuel. And as we go further and further into the book, we're going to keep looking back at this prayer and asking Is the leader like what Hannah's prayer says? We're going to keep looking for a leader who's like this in the book. One whose strength doesn't come from their money or military might, but one whose strength comes from God. One who does the work of God. Who, who by God's power, lifts up the humble and takes down the proud. And here's a spoiler. They all fail. Whether it be 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel, 1 Kings or 2 Kings, these four books in the Bible, you keep seeing leaders rise and leaders fall. Some are spectacular failures. Others seem like they're okay for a bit, but none of them really get there. Until, of course, we meet the great king, who is Jesus. The one who really is strengthened by God to make things right again to establish God's good order, to bring in a new age of real change and lasting change. And yes, we know that this is something that we'll fully see in the future when, God bring, when, when Jesus brings the new heavens and the new earth along. But we even see it now as Jesus' kingdom grows, as people come under his kingship and they're transformed from the inside out. So heed the warning of this passage. When you want things to change and you're grieving and hurting and frustrated by the injustice, when you want to see transformation and it just seems like nothing will ever bring it about, in those moments, don't expect the answer to come from within. Don't expect it to come from yourself. Don't look to your wealth or power or the skills that you bring to the table. Don't look to politics and the law courts. Don't even look to social movements and and, and people power. Those things have their place. They really do. But 
they're flawed in the end and they never really give us what we're looking for. They fail us. So instead, look to Jesus. He's the real change agent. The one who rights wrongs, who heals our deeply held griefs. He's secured a future for us where there is no more death or mourning, no more crying or pain. And even now as he comes into our lives, he brings that with him. Not in its fullness, but we get a taste of it now. Like I said, he, cha- he transforms us. He changes us from the inside out. Now we can... We, we, it's not that we, we walk through life without any pain. But Jesus is with us in our pain. We grieve with hope. It's not that we never face or, 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 or have injustice. But in the face of that, we have a hope for the future. When we get this, it uncomplicates our life because we know where our hope is. We know where to turn to. We look to Jesus. And we know where to point the world to when they want to change as well. We point them to Jesus. That is, do you want real change, good change, lasting change? Are you looking to Jesus? That's where you'll find it. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Father in heaven, we confess to you that we aren't perfect people. And we also know we live in a world that's broken in so many ways. We cause some of those ways sometimes. We're the problem. And yet we thank you that you don't let this stay. We thank you that you're about, about changing things. We thank you that we see that in the book of 1 Samuel. That you, you lifted up the humble and brought down the proud. God, we pray for that change in our world. So often we see injustices, so often pains come in our own lives and in the lives of our, uh, of our wider community. God, we thank you that Jesus changes this. We thank you that he transforms people. We thank you that he transforms whole communities. And we thank you that he transforms the world as well. We thank you that we have something good to look forward to. We thank you that we experience that even now. So please, God, keep us from being those people who look to ourselves and look to our strengths and power and skills, but instead look to Jesus. Help us to hold on to you amidst the grief and pray to you amidst the grief. God, would you bring real change, change for good, change that is honouring to you? Would you humble the proud, Father? Would you raise up the humble? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.